Welcome, everybody. It's another episode of Hollywood Godfather. And I'll tell you right now, we're getting so used to doing this. It's only going into our fourth season, I think. And fourth year. Thank you. What is it? It's fourth. Fourth year, not season. Fourth year. We've been through about seven seasons. Yeah, fourth year. And that's the voice, as you all know, my partner, friend, and co-writer, Pat Piccarelli. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And I, you know, I tell you something, Pat. I like doing the show, just you and I. <laughs> yeah, so do I. Sit around talking. Makes it a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. We got a lot to say. See, it would be a, a lot better if you were sh shaking a, a, a container of martinis and passing one over. There you go. Well, I can't do that. Through, can't uh, do that yet. Yeah, tough. All right. So uh, we got a letter last week from uh, an email from uh, James. You know, we, we specifically don't mention last names, by the way. I got James's last name, but, you know, 50,000 people are listening to this and, you know, we don't want anybody contacted. So that's the reason we don't mention last names. I don't think we ever explained that before, but we're explaining it now. Anyway, James wrote an email uh, regarding a book that I recommended by the name of Target Blue, which was about the NYPD during the 70s. Uh, uh, it was written by uh, one of the deputy commissioners of the uh, NYPD. And uh, James found the era fascinating, and he knows that I was on, on, on the job then during those years, and he wanted to know how was police work any different then than it is currently. And Jenny I, and I thought this was a great topic uh, for a show. And like we always say every, every week, we get a lot of show ideas from you guys, you know? I mean, think of something that you want us to talk about, and if it uh, relates to what we cover... We'll be happy to do it. We'll do the research and, and we'll do it. You may find the answers to your questions. Yeah, so, please. I mean, and again, as I, like Pat's saying, this is all about you and we want you to be involved with us. So, and I love this topic when he told me last week when we heard the, the question with Pat's background and mine during those years. We have a lot to say, which you're going to hear right now. <laughs> so, okay, so I'm just going to uh, say from, from the start, I mean, when I was taking notes about my career and the, well, not so much my career, but the era of the NYPD then versus now, I found myself shocked and I lived through this stuff. I mean, it's like two different worlds now. Uh, the, uh, somebody uh, looking forward in time from the late 60s and 1970s and uh, uh, to, the, to the present time, some police officer, they would be shocked as to what's going on in law enforcement agencies. That said, let me get, get in. This is a, a brief overview of what the job was like then. You know what it's like now if you read the papers. But we'll start with the entrance exam. All right. I mean, I had no desire to be a police officer. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I just got out of Vietnam, just got out of the military. I'm wandering around aimlessly. I was supporting myself by playing cards. I was pretty good at poker. I would bounce from one card game to another, maybe two or three a week. On this uh, day in question, it was a Saturday. I'm walking to my next card game. and I pass a high school. And there had to be like three or 400 uh, men, young men outside of the high school. They weren't hiring women as police officers back then. Uh, and I was curious. I said, you know, what's going on? He said, this is a walk-in uh, police test. As there is no such thing. I mean, if you want to join the NYPD, you go through a rig to take the test. <laughs> I mean, you, 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 it was just a, a jump to one hoop after another. There was fees to pay. Uh, and you wait, you apply for the test. The test comes six months down the line, if at all, maybe a year. 
this was just a walk-in test because the mayor then, John Lindsay, uh, when he was running for mayor, promised 3,500 new cops if he got elected. The problem was it was at the height of the Vietnam War. It was 1968. Oh, wow. And uh, the police weren't, you, you think the police are disliked now. You should have been around, been around back then. No one would even think of becoming a police officer. So he had to come up with, with some kind of gimmick because he won, and now he owed the city 3,500 cops. So he invents this walk-in test where he just walked in off the street. Now, normally, you would have to study for a civil service test. So I'm thinking, well, I got some time to waste. Let me go in there and take this test. This test, I took it October 25th, uh, uh, May 25th, 1968, was so ridiculously stupid and, and ridiculous. I'll give you an example of one question. This is how desperate they were for cops. It's 100 questions, uh, all multiple choice. The question, they showed a picture of a clock. The little hand was on the three, and the big hand was on the nine. And then they gave you four answers. What time is it? What? Is it 9.15? Is it 2.45? Is it a quarter to three? I swear to God. Imbeciles. They didn't care who you were. They needed 3,500 hot bodies to go on this job. So I take the test. I mean, this was so stupid. I I, I scored a hundred, and then I'm I'm, I'm I'm a. I mean, I could have Stevie Wonder could have scored a hundred on this test. <laughs> I mean, ridiculous. Anyway, uh, I plus <laughs> I got I, I got a couple of extra points for being a veteran, a, a combat veteran. So they appoint me. I mean, I wasn't prepared for this at all. I didn't want to be a cop. I mean, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I certainly didn't want to do that. It never crossed my mind. I'm in the academy. October 25th, 1968, which was the 100th uh, uh, anniversary or the 90th anniversary of the, the gunfight at the OK Corral, uh, October 25th, 1878. And I figured this is very apropos for what I was going to go through. But, so they had mostly Vietnam vets. Uh, a lot of them had a lot of combat experience. Uh, that That's the cops they got. But looking for action, that was the draw here. I figured... Well, maybe this isn't going to be too bad because I was a machine gunner in an infantry unit, you know. So I'm looking for a little excitement. The first day you're on the job back then, they gave you a gun and a shield, you know, your gun and your badge. They don't do that now until you're in the academy for four months. And they indoctrinate you. They, I mean, there's all kinds of laws. So you didn't academy. go to an academy or training or anything? The first day in the academy, you walk in the door, they hand you a gun and a shield. Wow. No training, nothing. They give, they give you the gun in a box. You take it home and they tell you, don't carry it until you start going to the range. Are they kidding me? <laughs> the first thing you do was go to a, 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 a gun shop and get ammo and a lot of, and of course, because you're legally now, they gave you the gun, you're a police officer within the state and carry 24 seven. So everybody's, everybody's carrying guns. And by the way, no background checks to this day. I'm waiting for my background officer to call me to come on down to see if I'm qualified to be a cop. The rigorous background checks that you normally would have to go through were not done with the October 68 class because they needed these cops. No one asked you any questions whatsoever. You never saw an investigator. They just had a gun and a shield and you started the academy. So you could have been a psycho. Oh, let me. This, you could have been let out of Bellevue and just go to get the, take anybody, the test. Anybody, anybody. Every two weeks we got paid and there wasn't anything called direct deposit back then. You had a line up outside the the main office on the sixth floor of the police academy. And it was a lot of us. It was 3,500, but working around the clock was three separate classes. So 
to figure at, at, at any one given time, there's like 800 cops lined up waiting to get paid. So we'd be uh, lined up all the way down the stairs, all the way down to the first floor. And internal affairs would come by with a list. And they'd say, who's John Jones? Who's Philip Smith? And they, the guys raised their hands. They'd slap handcuffs on him, take him away. What? <laughs> who's wanted for sodomy in Wyoming? Who's wanted for bank robbery? Uh, oh uh, you know, espionage. I mean, you name a crime. At the October 68 class, the one I was in, had the record of having the most cops arrested before they ever got out of the academy. I can't tell you how many people we lost in my class. That is amazing. Okay. Uh, the NYPD back then was rife with uh, with uh, uh, corruption. If you saw the movie uh, uh, Persico with Al Pacino, that was about the same time period. I wanted no part of this. Uh, not that I'm the most moral guy you ever want to meet in the world, but uh, I mean, I, I I lived with police corruption. My father owned a, a bar restaurant, and it was my job uh, once a month on a Sunday. I don't know if I ever told you this, Johnny. The, the bar was open 24 7 because you're paying off every cop in the precinct and the borough. You, 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 you never closed. I would sit there behind the table with a shoebox full of envelopes stuffed with money, and cops would come in for their monthly cash in uniform right off the street, and I would pay them. The only people that I couldn't pay were, were the bosses, like the captain and the deputy inspector, whatever, from the borough. But I, I knew all about police corruption. And this money allowed my father to be open 24-7, serving alcohol around the clock. I mean, it was amazing. Nobody bothered you. And he wasn't the only one. All the places down there were the same. That's I wanted wild. no part of that. So I joined, uh, I volunteered for the Tactical Patrol Force, the volunteer unit, of cops that worked in the worst areas, different place every night. But you had there was an interview process, and every cop had to be at least six foot tall. Well, I'm not six foot tall. I'm 5'10". I was just going to say, I met you a couple of times. You're not six. Yeah, all right. Okay. I, if you can believe this, I lied about my height and got away with it. In an in-person interview. That is funny. How, how tall are you? I said, I'm six foot. Okay. <laughs> Just write it down. And all I had to do was look at me. I mean, I don't look six foot tall. Maybe you had your elevator shoes on you on the third floor that day. <laughs> no. You know what it was? Uh, the the boss, uh, uh, James Sullivan, he, he was the, he was the chief of, uh, of TPF. He went on to be chief of detectives. Great guy. He was sitting down when he interviewed me. And I, I was standing up. So okay, he, there you I, go. Don't, I don't think they really cared. You know, I, I was... I, I qualified because I, w I was never locked up for homicide in my life. I wasn't a serial killer. Perfect guy to go into TPF. The police back then were proactive. They wanted you to go out and arrest people. They told you, you know, we're turning out in the 4 to 12. You have a, an arrest quota. You had a lock. We had to get at least three arrests a month in TPF. Now it's a reactive police department where they don't want you to make any arrests. You react to crime rather than try to stop it before it starts they would reward you if you got uh th simple arrest the uh, three duis uh, for every three duis you got you got an extra day off and points on the next civil service test it was like an eighth of a point which can mean a hundred or two hundred names you jump uh they 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 like that they wanted that they wanted you to go out there kick ass and make arrests it was a much safer city hello we can carry any gun we wanted as long as one of the guns, you can carry three guns if you wanted, as long as one of them was a department-sanctioned gun, a 38 caliber four-inch revolver. If you had that on you, you can carry anything else you want. I carried a 45. There were guys with 357s. Nobody cared. Uh, 
the respect we got from civilians was phenomenal uh, as, 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 as compared to now. Even in these terrible areas, I could name a lot of them, but I don't want to say bad things about neighborhoods. But back then, they were even worse. Uh, people would still, they, they hated us, but we were still respected. There was, I, I, like you're saying, I, I'm, I'm of that same era. There was, a, they respected that uniform and they knew you, they knew you had power. Not only that, you, you weren't afraid to use it. I know. Which comes to the next topic, which was very supportive bosses. They were behind you. They backed you. You know, you weren't afraid that if you do something, you're going to get arrested. Uh, if you made a, a mistake that was an honest mistake, they, they, they back you, they covered for you. I can tell you some of the stupid stuff that I pulled uh, that I would have gotten bounced for uh, uh, today was accepted back then. Uh, then in the early 70s came the, came the Black Liberation Army. They were killing cops left and right. They were assassinating white and black cops that were working as partners. Uh, and they just walk up to you and just blow you away. I was working in the East Village with the Tactical Patrol Force. The, the TPF used to go to these various commands because they were overwhelmed with certain crimes. And we would go in there to, to support them. We didn't have a station house. We didn't have anywhere to report to. We literally lived out of the trunks of our cars. We would have to be at home or near a phone uh, The uh, the uh, for that day. We worked from 6 at night to 2 in the morning. By 4 o'clock, you would get a phone call where you were working that night. And you went to the station house and you literally put on your uniform. You weren't already wearing it, but that was like suicide to be in uniform in a civilian car. Somebody spotted you that didn't like you, you'd be in trouble physically. We would change in the street and put the uniforms on and work literally out of the trunks of our cars. The BLA comes along, the Black Liberation Army, and it was was horrendous. I mean, uh, we had these little pop guns, handguns. They actually, the police department, authorized us to arm ourselves. So all our fathers that were in World War II that smuggled home BARs and machine guns and whatever they had, we were carrying them. And what we would do is we would follow radio cars because the favorite tactic of the Black Liberation Army was to ambush you in a radio car uh, when you were on patrol. So off duty, a bunch of us would get together. This was every precinct in the city. We would get together, civilian clothes, civilian car, off duty with these weapons of mass destruction and follow these radio cars while they're out on patrol. And you got to see this. You got five or six guys in a civilian car with these rifle barrels sticking out of the window, you know, uh, and I'm telling you, automatic weapons were not rare uh, just to protect each other. Right. Uh, That had to give you, I mean, I mean, it's, I hate to say it, but it sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) You know, we're young. We were just out out of one war and now we're going into another, you know, and, Particularly this unit, the, the, I, I can't say, somebody should write a book about this unit. Uh, I, I always considered it, but, uh, you know, other things came up. Very cohesive, very honest. It was never a hint of corruption. During the NAP commission, uh, which was one of the, uh, the commissions that investigated uh, uh, scandals in the NYPD, they read into the record about the honesty of, uh, of uh, TPF cops. Actually read into the record, which we... Wow. I mean, that was very nice. No one ever got in any, any, any kind of corruption trouble. We were there literally to kick gas, arrest people, and clean areas up, and then we'd move. But on one night, I was in patrolling. We always worked on foot. For the most part, uh, we always walking. Uh, I was walking with my partner. Fortunately, he was white. 
and we're walking to the precinct. It was a January night. It was cold. Uh, and I walked up a street. I think it was East 9th Street, but I'm not that sure. And pe- people are passing. It was a night, but not many people out because it was cold. I don't know who passed me. Uh, I didn't feel threatened or anything. Anyway, it comes time for us to eat. We went to a place on 14th Street called Yaya's. I don't even know if it's still there. While we're eating, you all kinds of sirens over the radio. Two cops shot the same street I was on. Uh, two cops. Uh, they were in a car, though. No, they were walking. They were uh-huh. they were they were precinct cops. They were walking. It was forceful. There was a uh, 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 Gregory Gregory Foster and Rocco Lori. Gregory Foster was the black guy. Rocco Lori uh, was the white guy. We're walking up the street. Two black guys passed them. They're talking to each other, just like a typical night. They whirled on them and assassinated them right in the street. That was the same block I was on. And I'm thinking, wow. I was walking with a black partner. Maybe I wouldn't be here now. But once they were down, they shot their eyes out. They 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 they, they shot them in the groin. I mean, this is horrible. So that's 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 what we, we were living with. And then came the famous Battle of the Stonewall Inn. You ever hear of that, Gianni? No. That was the start of the gay, gay liberation movement. All right? Oh, yeah, I knew that. Yeah, okay. Okay, we're, we're, we're working in, in uh, Brooklyn. If there's a, if any any hint of a large-scale problem, they would call TPF. So this night, they didn't tell us anything. They usually would tell us what we're going to do. We're in a Brooklyn precinct. Like we were working better for Stuyvesant somewhere in the 7-7. And we had our own uh, buses that they used to ferry us around in. They put us on, on the buses, didn't tell us where we were going. They brought us to the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And you ready for this? They put us on a submarine. What? Yeah. They put us on a submarine. Uh, and we, I don't know if you've been on the inside of a submarine. It's like, it, it, it's, it's, it's like being in a coffin. Oh, it's tiny. Yeah. Well, this was, once, this was my squad. We're in a submarine. Didn't go anywhere. It was in dry dock. We sat there until about two in the morning. Didn't tell us a thing got out of the submarine, got back on the bus, and we went to Greenwich Village and sat there, I don't know, till we hours, it was like four o'clock maybe, and that's when they told us we're going to storm this this gay club, this Stonewall Inn, because Mayor Lindsay, or was Mayor Koch at the time, I don't know, he, he had it in for these gay clubs because it was a Lots of crime there. And well, I don't, I don't know, know if Mayor Koch wouldn't have did it because he's gay. Yeah, I was surprised he <laughs> didn't catch him there. Has anyway, to be Mayor Lindsay. <laughs> it seems that, you know, and th- this is the birth of the uh, gay liberation movement for a reason, because we stormed that place in numbers, and they were waiting for us. They were on roofs. Wow. They were, were throwing garbage cans, toilet bowls, and I'm not exact. everything that could be ripped up. They threw at us, and we hit that place. The ones that were still standing, we hit that place, and they're waiting for us on the inside. And they battled us for an hour. I mean, it was brutal. Uh, How'd you survive it? <laughs> you know, you're, you're young and agile. You know, I mean, uh, you know how many times I was hurt? I was stabbed in the eye. You know, I mean, uh, it's not that night. The worst were the Vietnam peace demonstrations. You forget about peace and love. More cops got hurt. Uh, during those things, they turned on you. But the very worst riot that I've ever been in uh, was Columbia University. They were they were protesting uh, problems with the school, the Vietnam War. They were protesting everything. They barrack. If you those of you who don't know what Columbia looks like, the main campus uh, is surrounded by buildings, which is a, in essence a wall. It's a wall of buildings, and there's a big iron gate there. 
the students barricaded, they locked the gate and they barricaded it from the inside. And we got, they sent TPF in there. I can't tell you how we got in because we were sworn to secrecy, but we got in and they had stuff that they were experimenting with for riots. There was two kinds of gas. One was called full gas. Where if, if, if you get hit with this stuff, every orifice in your body opens up. Whoa. So picture that. And you, you, you can't function as a rioter anymore. And then they had something called banana peel. You can't take a step without falling on your ass. And that, that sort of stops the riot. But there was only, only one TPF that was the worst. That's the most violent. These are students, college students. There was only one TPF cop ever killed in a, in a line of duty. A guy named Stumpf. And he was killed at Columbia. Wow. So this is, he was killed trying to stop a car. Uh, he, he got he got hooked in the, in, in the window. He put his arm in and they dragged him to his death. Uh, you know, the, the, the upside of those years... Uh, was the cohesiveness we had with our fellow cops because you had to you had to have it to survive. Uh, you know, everybody asked me, "Well, what about the free stuff?" I understand you guys got a lot of free stuff. Meals. Uh, you were hard pressed to find a place that actually charged you for a meal, or at the very least, you would get like half off the bill. I was leery about going to the, those places for two reasons. One, I don't know what these cooks are putting in that food. I mean, I'm in uniform, right, right. You know, and but police weren't popular. I mean, that's being kind. I mean, they we were hated. Uh, unlisted phone numbers. You had to be. I didn't never told anybody I was on the job. It was a bad years. But the worst thing was, it, you know, you frequent the same restaurants and you're getting free free meals. You're in essence working for this guy who owns the restaurant. If there's any problems in there, they're going to come to you as their personal bouncer, and I couldn't do that. So I, 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 you know, some guy coming to me like, like I'm their security guard, and it's bound to happen sooner or later. So I would, I would take my lunch. I would eat in the station house. I wouldn't, I would not take free meals for that reason. I, I wasn't above the eating for, you know, for free. But there were consequences. Right, right. Then came the mob. This is where you come in. Nobody in the hierarchy of the job cared who your friends were, what you did, or where you went. I hung out in the beef east. Alibaba, which you, you're familiar with. Of course. Uh, there was so many places. I mean, I, you know, you're shoulder to shoulder with, with wise guys. They treated us with a lot of respect. Nobody ever tried to corrupt us or, you know, buy a couple of drinks or whatever. We talk, laugh. And, you know, they had their own thing. and we, we had our own thing, but we were in the same places all the time. Right. Uh, there was never any problems. Well, I remember even as, as a young runner for Costello in the in the beginning, you know, early on. Jesus. I, I was running envelopes to the, to the Westies and he didn't tell me what it was for, but he said, these are friends of ours, bring them, bring them this. And I dropped more of them. And I stayed friends with Buddy Leahy and even Buddy Leahy's son later on. I mean, I'm talking about as early as 10 years ago. And uh, the, as you said, the corruption of cops, the Westies with the Gambinos, that's, they were on the payroll, basically. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, it, was, it was accepted then. That's why I wanted nothing to do with this. You know, 
I, I was used to have this this fear that I would wake up in the morning to a knock on my door. There would be if I was a crooked cop, and there'd be a crew there for sixty minutes. You know, <laughs> oh, <laughs> saying okay. we, we we like we like you to answer a couple of questions. I didn't I didn't need that. I had enough stress at work. I wanted to stay straight and do my thing. But I'll tell you one thing: there was a hit in the Alibaba one night. Uh, I was there, not for the hit. I was there that night. There was a, many hits in the Alibaba. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm talking about the one that I was, I didn't know about any others, but uh, there was a guy named Rabbit there. They called him Rabbit. I don't know, you know, that was a street name. Obviously, his mother didn't christen Rabbit. Right. Uh, but uh, I think they were waiting for me to leave. I, I was there with, I don't know how many cops, maybe three or four. And that was a nice club. It was right at the, Right at the 59th Street Bridge. So I know. Who owned that place, by the way? O'Neill. Oh, there you go. No wonder the was. <laughs> anyway, Are you kidding me? I leave with 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 my friends. We we went somewhere else, and I I I I think that was that was the cue. Get the cops out of here, and then we're gonna go after Rabbit. Anyway, they they pulled guns on the guy. He ran under the piano. There was a piano in the corner, and they they went after him under the piano and shot him to death uh, under the piano. Uh, I was never called that. They knew I was there. Nobody ever came to interview me or anything. Nothing. Now, the Westies bar that you're talking about uh, was uh, Kilcullen's Green Beret. Um, yeah. I, we talked about this the other day. I, don't, I think it was on 11th Avenue, but I'm not sure. I don't remember. It could have been on 10th. Uh, but this is where these, these maniacs from the Westies used to hang out. Oh, no. And, I mean, and they, they didn't care about nothing. No, but they, they once again... They respected us. I, I, I think they liked us. Oh, the no, they, you know, they, no, I mean, it's, that's what I'm saying. Like you were mentioning it, they, you, you'd be drinking shoulder to shoulder with these guys. They, they, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Irish people for a lot of reasons, but the Westies, they, they were tough mothers, man. And they were yeah. for hire. And I, I five, all five families in New York hired them to do work. Well, that's so they could stay away. You know, they weren't directly connected. Exactly. So any kind of, but Kilcullen's uh, Green Beret, a, 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 a famous incident. Uh, a bookie by the name of Mickey Spillane was whacked. Yeah. And they brought his head in and they put it on the bar. Naturally, we weren't there, but I mean that's, you know, that place is long closed. It's something else now, but those guys were crazy. No, they were totally insane, and they wanted you to know that. And I mean, I, I I myself know. I mean, a lot of stuff that they did for the Gambino family in itself, and and, and most recently, I mean, I can remember when Buddy Lee was still alive. We went to one big party down there first. And then they had another big party at the Italian restaurants in the afternoon. And all the Irishmen would come to that as a respect. We'd be out all night, day and night, drinking just before Christmas with them. And they, I mean, they'd take out people in two seconds. They didn't care. It was just, you know, I recently taught in the, in the police academy here. I'm in southwestern Pennsylvania. And they don't have police academies in the state. Like they do other places, there's a central place for police academy. That's not how it runs here. The police academies are in colleges and universities. There's five of them or six of them throughout the state. And I taught in one for about a year. Uh, and when things started to get really bad with cops getting indicted and losing their jobs, I mean, uh, I, 
in good conscience, I could not do that anymore. <laughs> I, I couldn't try to teach kids. And they think kids, you know, 19, 20 years old. I don't know what they were expecting. Everybody comes on this type of job with high ideals. I mean, I can't, you know, somebody asked me why I went to Vietnam. You must have been very patriotic. No, I wanted to blow shit up. I mean, I was 18 years old, <laughs> you know. Oh, what, yeah. I, I was looking for the action. And it's the same reason I I, uh, I wound up uh, liking the NYPD. But that's not the way it is anymore. You know, so I just had to walk away from it. I, I couldn't try to convince these, these, you know, right out of, and these are not tough kids. These are kids that live in small towns. Oh, uh, I mean, I'm seeing, that's funny you should bring that up to me, because just two days ago, I, I was just being nice. Two cops come in. I'll tell you right well, I was in a coffee shop finishing my, my four miles, and I was sitting outside. It was a nice day. These two cops come in, and I said, you know, I really appreciate you guys on the job. And this one little short cop, I couldn't believe it was a cop, and the person who was with me let me know that they lowered the height. Did oh, you know that me, now? Johnny, they did that uh, when I was still on the job. I'll tell you a story that I thought was hilarious. Uh, uh, I taught in the police academy for uh, a year. This is something I also something else I lied about. I was getting burnt out in TPF. The TPF cops don't last longer than three years. I don't care what kind of attitude you have. You just get burnt from the places you work and the things you do. Just nuts. So they were looking for college graduates to teach in the police academy. So I said, I can do that. I'm a pretty sharp guy. So I go down. I sat down for the interview. They asked me uh, where I got my degree, what I my major was. I didn't have a college degree. I just told them I did. Now, this was the NYPD. You think they pick up a phone? And I was going to school. I was going, but I was nowhere near close to graduating. Uh, and I I, I, I I, bluffed my way into it. They graduated a cop from there. Uh, I don't want to say her name, but she, she became quite famous for uh, posing nude uh, while a cop in a, in a magazine called Beaver. Really? If you can believe this. Anyway, she, but she was a cop then and she was so small. Uh, anyway, when I went back on the street, uh, I stayed there for about a year or so. I went back in the street and I was working. I was a sergeant then. And I was working uh, in the area where she was working. And there's a uh, there's a, a system with foot cops that a sergeant will go on their post and sign their books. They got like a little uh, memo books. And it shows that uh, the sergeant was around and the cop was on their post. And everybody had a radio. So I go past this cop's post and I don't see her. Now, this could be alarming because maybe she's laying in an alley dead somewhere. What do I know? It was a two-block post. You really can't get lost. So I get on the radio, and I said, you know, officer, and I mentioned her name. I said, uh, I don't want to sit too much on the radio. I don't want to get her in trouble if she was somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I said, uh, uh, you're on your post. I'm, I'm coming down. They call it a scratch right in the book. I go down two streets again. She's not there. I said, I told my, told my driver, go around the block. Go around the block. She's still not there. So I said, now I'm getting pissed off because she's telling me, you know, I know she's all right because she told me she's on her post and she's not. I said, so I said, pull over to the side. So we pull over to the side and I said, where are you? She said, I'm on the corner of 20th and 3rd. And I look up. I'm on the corner of 20th and 3rd. You know where she was? Standing behind the mailbox. What? Standing behind a mailbox. And you didn't see it. That's how sure no. she was? 
No, she was under five foot tall. She was like four nine. Oh my God. Her nightstick, which they, you know, uh, you know, they used to carry nightsticks. Would drag kept... along the sidewalk. <laughs> yes, it was. It, it, it was a loop on her belt, and it actually touched the ground. And I said, "Where did they lower the heights, though?" There's no height. They didn't lower it. There's no height. Well, you know why I'm saying because I remember I had a cousin that you know I I used to go down the neighborhood. He lived in, around there when he was he was sleeping on the floor. And I said, why are you sleeping on the floor? His back was complaining. He said, why? I said, I, I have to, I got to take the police test. I got to, I have to grow another inch. I'm sorry, are you crazy? And because oh. he had, had, there was a height. If you weren't that height, you couldn't get that job. You know, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to mention his first name. You know our friend Bo? Oh, yeah. Okay. He slept on, on the floor because he's short. Right. He, he, he slept on, on, on the floor one night when he went down. This is a famous story. He took, you know, talk about it all the time. When he went down for the test, they brought him on, on a door. They yeah, took the door off the hinges in. so he wouldn't stand up and his spine would compress. Yeah, until he got there. Yeah. So, I mean, he, when, when you're sleeping, your, your spine decompresses and you're, you're at your tallest height, which for him was 5'8". And that was the minimum height back then. But if he stood up and walked in to take the train wherever he had to go to get, uh, get the physical, he'd shrink yeah. down again. So they brought him in on a door. Then they stood him up. And yeah, they, they, uh, they did all those gimmicks. Look, she hit the mark at that day. Don't that need to, it. don't need to do that. And this was when I was on the jobs. This was at least from the 1980s. There was no, and let me tell you something about this this uh, dwarf cop. She went on to be a really good cop. She didn't take shit from anybody. Hmm. I mean, she she locked the people up. She had she was fearless. But then she posed naked for this magazine, and she got in a lot of trouble. It was huge news. Oh, wow. You, uh, and why she did it, I have no idea. No, but to get back to my story, I was being really nice to this cop. Yeah. And one was a regular tall cop. And I, when I said that, he said, what are you being smart? I said, excuse oh, me? Yeah. I said, I'm just complimenting you. Thank you for being on the job. Well, I thought you were making fun of my height. I said... And now that he brought it up, I wouldn't say nothing. I said, excuse me, I'm having my coffee, okay? Yeah. And he looked at me like I had two heads. I well, was first being nice to him. He had an attitude, I think, because he knew he knew he was short. Yeah, I go, you know. My father had that, that. My father was five foot four. He had an attitude. We call it a Napoleon attitude because he was yeah. short. It's common. But, you know, you, you have an obligation. You're out there in uniform how to treat the public. You have a problem with your height. You don't say something. You say, thank you for, for being uh, uh, concerned and walk away. That's all I was. I, I said, thank you for being on the job. You know, I, I, I appreciate your service. And he got an attitude with me. I couldn't believe it. No, that's, that's uncalled for. That's, you're not supposed to do that. It's, it's no. obviously you're not supposed to do that. No. But you're getting a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of new officers now. Most cops don't live in the city anymore. When oh, I was yeah, on, that's they an did. old thing they're trying to do now. Well, they've been trying to do that for years, you know, but they're not going to do it because then they wouldn't have a police force. You know, who, who can afford to live oh, in, yeah. in a city anymore? But uh, no, they have to take graft. <laughs> a lot of these guys and women come from small towns, upstate New York, Long Island, and they, they get into the, the, the jungle that is Manhattan, particularly now. You know, I'm talking about the, oh, the, the God, late yeah. 60s. And 70s, when I was on, I look at pictures. I mean, last time I was in New York, 
was when we had the book party. Right. So there wasn't a problem back then. It's, no. You know, it's over three years ago. It happened the last place, three, yeah, now it's gotten crazier. Places, places like a jungle. No, it's crazy. And, I mean, people, all, I mean, it's just, and they don't care. You know, I'm, I mean, I've seen women just pull down their pants and go to the bathroom. Sit down on a car bumper. I know, I, yeah. And just I, I, relieve themselves. I, and don't I care, guess, you're not going to arrest me. I, and she's right. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, I hear the same thing from our agent, Frank Wyman, who refuses to come to New York unless he has to. Yeah. And I, I, I can't say as I, uh, I blame him. But there are police departments now who are actively poaching New York City cops for their, for their departments. They're offering tremendous bonuses, 5000 10000 to leave the NYPD. They're already trained. So uh, we have the best uh, academy around. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's a very good academy. But a lot of cops are, are leaving. These, these out-of-town police departments, most, mostly in the, in the south and the southwest, the pay is much better. I mean, I came on the job. My, my starting pay, you're not going to believe this, was $6,600 a year. What? I can't rent a garage for that in, in New York. Oh, I'm serious. A year? Of course you can. 6600 a year. And it took like three years or four years before I reached 16000 Wow. Uh, the cops are still underpaid. I mean, they they, they started 42000 Who can survive in New York on $42,000 a year? And you know some of these people are married with families. Yeah. But I, I think the top, the top salary after five years or something like that is up to like sixty-five or seventy, which is still not enough. So these other police departments. I mean, I have a small town police department here, Monroeville, which pays their patrol cops their lowest rank, one hundred and ten thousand dollars. Jesus. And you know what the cost of living is here compared to New York? About I mean, one hundred ten thousand dollars goes a long way around here. Yeah. You know, but uh, so these departments, these outside departments are poaching New York City cops and they're doing quite well. Cops are leaving in droves. You know, I don't blame them. Though. Yeah. I tell you, they have to me. I mean, they are stripped of everything. They, they're going to I don't know who, how they're going to do what, you know, this new police chief is saying he's going to do. But they, they're not respected at all. What was the what was the mob attitude then? I mean, I'm on the outside looking in. You're on the inside looking out. Right. So in the '70s, what was the attitude toward cops? I know what I experienced. They loved the cops, especially the cops that were on the take with them, because then you know, looked the other way. I mean, just with me, I got to know every cop, and they knew what I was doing. I was bringing envelopes to Twitch Shores, walking in and out of places, but you know, they they had a respect. Cops today well, aren't respected. Well, what was the attitude toward cops who weren't on the pad? No, they re respected them anyway. Yeah, that's the point I was trying to make. No, no. The yeah. cops on the street yeah. were looked up as, as doing a great job, protecting the neighborhood. That was it. Not, you know, you degenerate, you rat, you this, that. Up. I mean, as you see when they protest, Women get up and spit in their face, and they can't do nothing. Well, I was used to that. I had a lot of that. But, uh, uh, we, you know, we used to, if we if we ever had to go with uh, uh, detectives, if they were, when I was a, a uniformed cop, if they were serving search warrants, for example, and they, you know, to make sure they would bring uniformed cops with them, uh, whoever was home, whether, it's, it, it, whether it was the target, you know, uh, uh, an associate, a maid guy, a captain, whoever it was, their wives, whoever, was so polite, so nice. 
Would you like some coffee, officers? And they let them search, do whatever they want to do. Yeah. We're, uh, we're, we're sitting down for lunch. Would you like some? I mean, just very, I never had a problem at all with disrespect from wise guys. Years passed, and when I'm ready to retire, you know, young guys trying to make a name, you know, with the 90 mile an hour haircuts, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. they were a little bit difficult to deal with. But the, uh, the older guys were just nice people. No, you no, know, and the, that's what I'm saying. They, they, you know, we never had I, a number. I'm not, and I've been around in the club actually when you know they'd come in and they'd be welcome. Come on, come in, you know. And uh, well, they figure what's yeah. the point and being what's what's the the upside for being nasty? I know. It's, I don't. I don't get it. It's, so, do, do we answer this guy's question? With oh, well, very well. Uh, oh, hold it. Now. I think there was something else here. Oh, Chief Seidman. Yeah. Uh, Albert Seidman, he asked about Al Seidman. Al Seidman was the chief of detectives during this era. He was the last of the old time cigar chewing, tough detectives who became a chief. And everybody loved this guy. Listen to that. He had a solid gold detect, uh, chief of detective shield, which he had struck. Solid gold. <laughs> this guy was. I love was the a, guy. He went, came into a room, and he was a force unto himself. Uh, you know what? A, you know what? A, a, the size of a, a shield, solid gold. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't believe it. And gee, everybody liked the guy. He was on the scene. The, 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 well, I was there, but I, I couldn't get to the crime scene when when Carmine Galanti was killed. It was on my birthday, July twelfth, oh, yeah, yeah. and I was I was in the area. I said, I got to see this. So I went there, but I, I knew a couple of guys, but I, I couldn't get in there. Seedman shows up because this was a big thing. I mean, it was a mob hit. Oh, yeah. He comes up, gets out of his car. You know, I mean, he's a chief. He's, he's getting chauffeured and guy opens the door for him. He's got the pork pie hat. He's got the cigar, you know, and right. beefy, tough guy. He goes in there. Now, the word is that Carmine Galanti, who everybody hated because he was just a nasty guy. Oh, yeah, he was. Nasty. He just had a he hated everybody. Even his daughter was a psycho. I mean, if you ever saw her interviewed after he got whacked, she was cursing everybody. Anyway, he went back there. The famous picture of Carmine Galanti, if the listeners want to look it up, it's a, 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 an iconic picture. He's lying dead With the in the courtyard man. of uh, Mary's Restaurant or whatever the name of it was. Uh, they had a little courtyard in the back. He's, he's there, obviously dead. They shot on him to death. He's got this cigar sticking out of his mouth. That was Seedman's cigar. He stuck it in his mouth. Oh, that's great. To disrespect that's a great, him. great history. Yeah, and, and uh, I don't think that's that's folklore. I think it's true because he walked out of that place without a cigar. So let's you know we can we can figure that that actually happened. But uh, uh, Seidman was loved. He was respected. He uh, he got himself in trouble. You remember the uh, there was a department store called A and S Strauss or something like of that. Of course, it's more Bloomingdale's okay. now. He took Abraham something. Abraham and Strauss. He took some. Yeah, Abraham and Strauss. He took some kind of a free meal or something. Guy's the chief of detectives for Christ's sake. Takes a free meal. You're gonna you're gonna crucify the guy. Particularly everything he did. He was behind the the, the capture of the the, the 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 Black Liberation Army when they were killing all these cops. He he had a great attitude. He said, you find any of these guys, I don't want to see them walking into any station house. So all these guys were killed. Yep. With the exception of one or two, but but the real bad guys, Twyman Myers and all these nuts, they, they were on the street, they were shot dead. And this was Seedman backed everybody up. But uh, he was chastised for this. He was humiliated. He says, I'm having uh, dinner with a friend of mine who picks up the check, and, and you're going to castigate me for that? He retired. And 
Oh, I don't blame you that. That's when well, you, they get stupid, you know. The last of an era. Is, is, is no, he, he he must have known Joe Coffee or Joe Coffee oh, knew him. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, they, oh, yeah. Uh, Coffee came up with him. Seaman died uh, probably three years ago. He was well into his nineties. Oh wow! Uh, but with the cigars, with the hat, lived in Florida. You know, right. cops burial ground down there. And, yeah, Co Coffee was another one. Last of the old school. Oh, I love Joe Coffee. Yeah. Joe Coffee and I. I mean, we got to know each other so well. He had no problem coming on vacations with us, with his wife, Susan. You could do that then. He'd, he'd come to, I mean, Acapulco was the place to go during yeah, the, that era. And he'd be staying with 100 years of good behavior in the house that we had down there for years. <laughs> you know, then it was considered the right thing to do because he's, he's, he's a, a detective and a good one. And he became a sergeant of detectives. I mean, you have to keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on in the city. What do you do? You know, lock yourself in your office or, or, or go to lunch with priests and nuns? Right. You, you got to go where the, where the action is, where the information is, where the intelligence is. You make friends, and that's how you become successful. You know? Uh, well, but that's uh, why it, there, there it, was that one scene that I really liked in The Godfather when they whacked McCluskey, and now I'm sure our audience knows the scene. And when Michael said that he'll kill him prior to doing it, he said, and he, and he looks at and he looks at Tom Hagen. He's Tom. He's a dirty cop, right? We could find something on him, right? Because Sonny was the one that said, "You can't kill a cop." Or you think you kill a cop now? And that's when you couldn't kill a cop if they if they're part of the problem. You can't, right? But and, I'm saying, but yeah. that's when they let it out. Yeah, and. We can get the dirt on them, and that's what they did. They did that whole, and they did it in a, in a collage. And during the, the, the when they were, went to the mattresses, when Michael went away, they showed the headlines of McCluskey, dirty cop, this and the other. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, everybody stops investigating. Right. You know, for like the, the last forty five minutes, I've been talking all about you know this gloom and doom and and, and how how tough it was. We had some good times. You know, if it wasn't for the fact that I considered the job fun back then. You know, oh, and yeah. we used to, when we made arrests, we would make sure that we made them like on a Friday night because they'd court be in all really, weekend. Uh, then. Yeah. You know, we, we would go to court with lawn chairs. Did I ever tell you the story. No. We go with folding lawn chairs like you take to the beach. Right. And we would, we would sleep in our uniforms in court in the hallways all weekend, drawing overtime for the whole thing until they called our case on Monday. Oh, that's wild! Just to get so the, I, I, I had a in addition to my uniform and everything else. I had a lawn chair in the car, <laughs> and people would say, well, "What are you doing with a lawn chair? You're in uniform." It's like you ever see a cop carrying an umbrella? Of course not. But you ever see one with a freaking lawn chair? Well, you can do that then. You can't do that now. If you're going to catch forty winks, you're going to do it on the floor. You know, we had no. trying to make ourselves comfortable. But no, I mean, uh, anyway, that's that's the comparison between now, uh, between then, and I don't want to talk about now. Oh, you can't. Because all you have to do is, is, you know, what's CNN or Fox or whatever station you look I mean, at. You know what police workers look like every, every other protest, that's yeah. it. It's police. But anyway, uh, James, I hope we answered your question. But James, and our audience, we want, to, want you to know one thing, and I notice I'm, I'm speaking for Pat without even discussing this about him. We... Totally respect anybody in uniform. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, and I, I, I you know, I, I, I still do. Even when when people say, uh, uh, I don't tell anybody that I was in the military around here, or 
Vietnam or anything. So every now and then the word gets out, I guess. But when somebody says, thank you for your service, I don't think of the military. I think of police. Police, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's the first thing that, that pops into my mind. Because nobody ever ever thanked you, you know? I mean, oh, we would no get treated with respect. And, you know, parents would come to us with their kids to tell them what's going to happen to them if they misbehave. Can you imagine parents taking kids to, to, to a, a police station to get talked to now? Hold on. They tell them just the opposite. Yep. Our, our, our last mayor told oh. his kids to avoid the police, be afraid of the police. The mayor. Well, that I mean, he. Yeah. Well, you know, Bill De Blasio. To me, I mean, I, I can't believe that they let him get away with that, knowing he has an interracial family. Yeah, he, he created the problem. You know, he definitely created a problem. He's telling people it's okay to distrust the police, and that's. He's bringing everybody under under one umbrella. Everybody's bad. Everybody's brutal. Everybody's this. Right. Everybody, and, and and he he pushed that uh, oh, many he, times. I, no, he initiated it. That's for sure. Well, look at the shape that the city is in, and uh, we'll know what he accomplished. Hello. On that happy note, uh, we're about up to fifty minutes or close to it. Another Time great flies. show, and thank you. What, what's the kid's name that asked for this? James. James, thank you for listening and being a loyal follower for all from day one. Yeah, I hope I yeah I, I hope I answered your question. Particularly that you know whoever heard of Al Seidman, you know, <laughs> uh, he, he, well he deserves recognition. He, he was a cops cop, and uh, if you if you were right, no matter what you did, he backed you. I mean, That's he didn't care about career. You know, everybody's out for their own pension. Yeah, I'd I'd I'd, I'd love to get a hold of that gold shield. I wonder where that is. Uh, yeah, hello. I'm Solid sure everybody, gold. somebody did. It was hot stuff. All right, everybody. Well, uh, thank you for listening to my rants. I no, appreciate please. it. I think it was great. No, I just, it's so enlightening. I mean, you know, the one thing about us, who we are, and we're both from the same neighbor, but from different sides of the street, it's the experience of life that I think that's missing with this all-new oh, generation. They're absolutely. all on their... Uh, iPads, whatever they're doing, they don't communicate. They don't. They don't go play no, stickball on the street. You know? Every now and then, you know, I, I'm, I'm used to the fact that you know we, we live in a very cloistered area here. I mean, my sons were shocked when I took them downtown to where I used to live, and they were shocked. You know, with for, with all the people, with the smells, all the good food, and oh my you know, God, yeah. it's just so great. But I get shocked every now and then. Uh, I, I, you know, I was just started to think. You know, every now and then my students, college students, you know, I'll get handwritten stuff for whatever reason. It's, it's unintelligible. Not that what they're re writing is unintelligible. The handwriting is unintelligible. I cannot read it. And they this don't is, write. They were never taught. They were, cursive. You know, I, Remember cursive lessons in school? <laughs> I tell you, we, we used to sit there for hours on line paper. I know. Writing until we got it right. When, you know, first and second grade, what kind of homework do you get? Our homework was writing. Yeah. Until That's we had the only homework I remember because I only went to first grade because then I got polio and that was it. I always I remember those. That I, can, I can remember the pages, like you say, the line paper, horizontal. Yeah. There was a half line for the small letter to hit the top of that. Exactly. And you exactly. had to go to the second line for the, for the capitals. You had to hit the lines. Now, but yeah. people are saying, "Look at these old guys talking about." But listen, you know, <laughs> think about. But, anyway, but uh, think about this: uh, having having a beautiful handwriting, or at least something that can be read. You know, I tease Legible, my younger son. Yeah. I, I, I tease my younger son Zach because he's 
he's part of this era that never were taught uh, uh, penmanship. But I said, and, and you can't read his writing either. But I said, well, you're in good shape because you're going to be a doctor. There you go, because they, <laughs> they don't want you to be read. <laughs> yeah, in fact, there's probably a, 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 a class in medical school to teach you how to write when nobody can read it. But I said, you're well ahead of the game because nobody can. And Alex is the same way. He just said, you know, and these are smart kids, obviously, no, you know, but nobody ever taught them how to write. No, they send emails and text messages. They don't even but carry a pen. Who has a pen in their pocket today? <laughs> but that doesn't negate the school's responsibility to teach you how to write. Right, right. Send all the emails you want. I mean, aware of that error. I mean, that's, that's how we communicate. But every now and then you have to address an envelope, you know, or right. sign a check. These kids, they don't even know what checks are. No, you know, no, they got all this. They got this stuff. They lay their phone on the in the supermarket. <laughs> well, you know, we don't have to date ourselves that much, but there's there's ways you you can you can transfer funds, and that's fine. I mean, you know, I mean, I I do it all the time. I don't go to a bank to deposit a check, I take a picture of it. But you know, I don't know anybody that's my my son's age, and some of these kids have their own businesses now. They're in their upper twenty. They're doing well. They they can't write a check. They don't know how to do it. That's well. Literally. Yeah, I mean, that's another people, topic for another show. Yeah, I guess. Let's yeah, say we're, goodnight. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're starting to rant ourselves. Yeah. But anyway, uh, thank you, James, for allowing me to uh, to talk about my past. Yeah, you thank you all for being concerned and send the letters and the questions. We'll answer them, man. Yeah, anything you want us to do within reason, we'll have a show. All right. Good night, okay, everybody. Jim. Thank you. Yeah, have a good night, buddy. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Yeah, please. If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but Thank just you call for tuning me. in to the Hollywood call Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself, Megan Horan, with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com, which is where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather and on Facebook, as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd like to know what you'd like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your messages. Good night. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be around. I'll be around.